Welcome to The Suitcase. I'm the scribe with award-winning journalist Scott Burnside and former NHL goaltender Mike McKenna, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Hey everybody, Scott Burnside back with my good pal Mike McKenna for this week's edition of The Suitcase and The Scribe. Mike, you are looking fabulous. You look like a guy who saw actual live hockey last night. And how exciting is it to be sitting here talking about the actual start of the 21-22 NHL season? Well, are you insinuating that I've got bags under my eyes and I was up late watching the Vegas game? Because if that's the case, well, it's actually true. Uh, I did put a little makeup on today, but, uh, you know, it's just we have this whole buildup getting ready for a season. And as a player, it's different because you've got training camp, you've got summer skates, the things that just come naturally to you. But for us now in media, which I guess I'm a media person, but it's it's just different. You know, you're finding things to talk about. You're trying to figure out who's going to be good, who's not. And then it all goes out the window the first game of the year. And something happens like the Penguins beat the, the Tampa Bay Lightning, the reigning champions. Who expects that to happen? It's just one game, but that's what makes us so exciting. It's nice to wake up and have live action to talk about and to look at your smiling face and be ready to go for episode two of the suitcase and the scribe. So, so I'm curious. I mean, I'm, I'm, I thought there was lots to, to talk about with those two games. As you mentioned, Pittsburgh upsetting the defending champs. Yeah. Still looked a little bit hungover from the Stanley Cup uh, in their <laughs> performance. And then, of course, the first ever Seattle Kraken game in Vegas against the their expansion brethren. But I, I want to ask you first, Mike, because I, I think about this and, and we're fortunate. Later in the show, we're going to have uh, Minnesota Wild GM Bill Guerin join us. Also, the assistant GM of Team USA for the 2022 Olympics in Beijing. And I, I'm curious to see how, how Bill feels about this, too. But as a player... Do you have specific moments from an opening night? I don't care where it was, what team, like were there moments that stuck with you from that opening night of this particular season? Because it strikes me that, that, I mean, everything is equal, right? I don't Mm -hmm. care whether you're supposed to win or not. Uh, That moment on the ice, everything is equal and it truly is a, a blank slate. And I wonder if you have special memories from any opening nights of your own. I do. And, you know, I'll preface this by saying I was never on an opening night roster in the NHL, unfortunately. So I don't have those experiences. But I think that anybody who's played the game at any level with fans in the building can tell you that there's a certain buzz and a certain atmosphere when you skate out for that first game of the season. There's always pyro. Maybe there's a guest guest celebrity dropping the puck, you know, our local legend that's, you know, this guy's the best car salesman in Springfield, Massachusetts. Let's wheel him out to drop the puck or something like that. I mean, it's got a palpable buzz to it, you know, and I think that winning that first game is really just so important. You can carry momentum out of that first game so easily. And on the converse, conversely to that, like it's so hard to keep your mind out of the gutter if you don't play well that first game. Uh, First impressions are everything. It's just like walking into an office where you want to walk in and and put your best foot forward and let everybody know, hey, I'm here to work. I'm here to impress. And what's funny is like even last night, Scott, digging into these games, I'm watching the Kraken play and Philip Grubauer, who I think is an excellent goaltender, I could tell he was pressing. He's a little bit outside of his crease. And, you know, at times the Kraken looked like they were you know, a little disjointed, which is expected for an expansion team for a bunch of guys that haven't played together. But I think a lot of that could really just be chalked up to the amount of energy that they had leading into the game. It's easy to go overboard with it. You know, on the flip side of that, we look at Tampa Bay, who was looked like they were sleepwalking a little bit, especially compared to Pittsburgh, who came out. uh, I mean, first period, Pittsburgh put 14 shots on goal. They were flying. Vasilevsky makes a miscue behind the net that you don't usually see. So, it, it, it was an interesting night from that standpoint, but I think a lot of it does go to the nerves associated with that opening night and just trying so hard. You want to win so bad. And, and sometimes you forget, hey, you've played this game for 20 something years. Dial it back, play your game. You're good to go. But our mind always takes over. <laughs> I remember it must. I, I, my memory is after the 2012 lockout and we started the 48 game schedule early in 2013. And I think I think I was in Philly to start the season. I think the Flyers played the Penguins 
to start the season. But I, the very first game, I believe, was the defending Stanley Cup champion, LA Kings against the Chicago Blackhawks. And the, the, the again, my memory, you know, I should have looked this up, but <laughs> Blackhawks win that game. And I don't think it mattered to the Kings as nearly as much as it mattered to the Blackhawks. And the Blackhawks got off to just a an absolutely torrid start. And I remember talking to Patrick Sharp and Patrick Kane after uh, about just, you know, starting the season on that high note and, uh, you know, whatever they're, uh, they ran 23 games or whatever, they Mm -hmm. had just an incredible start. And of course ended up winning the Stanley cup um, later that spring or summer uh, beating Boston in the final. But that start was key for the Blackhawks. And I'm not suggesting Pittsburgh are going to go on that kind of role, but my sense is that game probably meant a little bit more to Pittsburgh, just given their dynamics. Well, especially missing players. You know, you look at Crosby and Malkin are out of the lineup. Gensel's not in. There's an awful lot of firepower that wasn't in the lineup for Pittsburgh. They knew they had to play a team game. They knew they had to play fast and Tristan Jari looked good. You know, and I think that's a big variable for the Pittsburgh Penguins this year is how Jari responds. Last year wasn't great. Playoffs were a disaster. Yeah. Andy Kyoto's the goalie coach there now. Kyoto was Jari's coach in the minors. They had a great relationship. You wonder how that's going to play. I wasn't very high on their goaltending tandem. I wrote an article for, for Daily Faceoff that came out yesterday saying they were pretty far down my list in terms of tandems, but I do think that there's potential that they can jump up. Char- Jari has those intangibles. But, man, how about Jeff Carter? You know, here's a guy you pick up last year. You throw him in. You're thinking, how's this contract going to play out? Well, you're seeing the value of him being in the lineup at this point. And, you know, Scott, I, I my favorite moment last night, and I wonder the same for you. And I want to ask you what what went through your mind when you saw Brian Boyle score right off the bat? Oh my god! I, I you know I I think I was like a lot of people. I filled with like that kind of joy that that comes from an opportunity realized and a, a person you know to whom good things are, are happening once again. And it's been you know he didn't play at all last year. Played in the right. worlds. Um, I'm fortunate. I had a chance when Brian Boyle got traded from New Jersey to Nashville, um, got a chance to meet him at the airport with the, um, uh, Brandon Walker, the Preds team services guy hung out with, the with Brian, talked to his wife. It was a crazy story. His, his son has had, had had some health problems and he was, his wife was taking him to a specialist in Boston, I believe. And he called to say, by the way, when you get home, I won't be here. I'm going to Nash. Um, but just his presence in locker rooms, I don't care whether it's been in Tampa or Toronto, wherever he's been, Brian Boyle is, is a leader. And you wonder, you know, was, was it at the end of the road for uh, a guy who has meant a lot to a lot of teams? And he goes on a PTO, finds out the day before, if I'm not mistaken, that he's uh, got a place in the Penguins lineup. And you alluded to a number of the injuries or absences for the mm-hmm. Penguins to start with. And he takes full advantage, scores a nice five-hole goal, really to, to help the Penguins solidify their lead in that game. I don't know. What, what went through your mind? Uh, just smiling. Yeah. You know, this is somebody that across the sport is really loved. And it's not just that he's come back from cancer. He missed an entire season of hockey last year. He didn't have a contract and and he did what he needed to, to stay in the game. And you just don't see people come back like this. You know, I remember a couple of years ago with Dallas, RJ Umberger shows up. He had been out of the game for a year. He had a pretty good training camp. He thought he'd give it one more kick at the can and there was no space for him. And it's really out of sight, out of mind in this game. And I think it, it really speaks to Brian Boyle, how he's thought of within the sport. And not just that he can bring in tangible on the ice, but this is a guy you want to have in your locker room. And realistically, Pittsburgh knows that when Crosby, when Malkin, when Gensel, when they're back, maybe Brian Boyle is out of the lineup, but he's still in the NHL. And when injuries hit yet again, it's a guy you can put right at. He knows how to handle this situation, you know, and he's still, you know, Stanley Cups are enticing, you know, Pittsburgh. May not have been picked by everybody to be a true contender this year, but you can never count that team out at full strength. When they're healthy again, we don't know what to expect out of them. So uh, it's it's interesting, and we've already talked about it too, about big names being absent, Scott. And there's quite a few around the league. I mean, think about uh, Backstrom's out of Washington, McKinnon on the COVID list. 
Carey Price is uh, in the player assistance program. Not sure if or when he may come back this year. So, like Scott, from your standpoint, what teams are you looking at in terms of the injuries and players out that it's going to make life difficult on them? Yeah, I, and, he, and the list is the list is significant, and the list of significant players is long. And Evander Kane, for instance, still sure. under investigation by the league, and what will happen with him in San Jose? A lot of there's a lot of stuff going on with Evander Kane, both on and off the ice uh, in his life. So how does that get resolved? Um, I, I'm I'm really I'm curious, you know, whether I think it's still uncertain whether Alex Ovechkin will play in their opener against the Rangers. Yeah. He, I didn't like it was it was an awkward hit. And it looked to me like he was trying to hold up a bit on a hit that would have been from behind. But he sort of looked like he twisted something. And, yeah. you know, to me, when we talk about his potential assault on Wayne Gretzky's goal record and his new contract in Washington, you know, I, I think we've all looked at Ovechkin as there's a strong possibility he can, you know, sort of do the unthinkable and catch or pass Wayne Gretzky's goal record because he's been so durable and has stayed so healthy. That's um, the key point. He has, yeah. he just and hasn't he missed hockey games. Yeah. Well, and he plays, plays the same way now, more or less than he did when he came in in 05, 06, yeah. which is, uh, you know, it's so much fun. Make, to me, it's what makes him so much fun, but that would, you know, that's a big red flag. And, and Nicholas Batram with a hip injury and long-term injury. Now uh, it, that's a real concern there. I, you, you go to the Leafs, you know, Austin Matthews won't play in the first week. I mean, so let me ask you, do you think it like, because the first week is often really fluid and you guys are, you know, still finding their footing. I, I'm with you. I thought Philip Grubauer looked a little, a little tense in his first yeah. game, you know, he's going to be better. Um, it is, do you, how much stock do you put in what happens in the first couple of weeks? And does it allow a team that might be missing? You no, know, I think I expect Sidney Crosby will be back sooner than later. Certainly Jake Gensel is expected back sooner than later. Is it better to be missing now than in the middle of November or the middle of January is, does it or or does it always suck when you're missing them? Doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, Scott. I think it really matters about the past precedents of your team and the team makeup. Yeah. I think if you're looking at Pittsburgh, it's a team that has had success relatively recently and enough bodies that are still there to know how to power through things. They can still look to the reinforcements coming with Crosby and Malkin. You know, but even look at Philly with Hayes being out for a while. You know, if they don't start off well in Philly, I worry about that team. You know, that didn't end well there last year. I, I just think that teams that have experience of winning can miss players and keep it rolling much easier than the teams that haven't had it previously, no matter what. Because when you walk into the season, you're always thinking, this is it. This is our year. We're better. We can contend. Even the worst teams in the league think they can make the playoffs. You know, if they catch lightning in a bottle. I mean, I guarantee you the guys sitting in Arizona right now are going – Screw you to everybody in this world. We're going to make playoffs. We're going to prove everybody wrong. And I love that because you never know who's going to be the underdog story. Somebody will be this year. We don't know who it'll be, but somebody will. And, and I think even let's go with Tampa. You know, they don't have players missing like the other clubs. But if they go two and eight to start the season, I'm not concerned about them. Yeah, I don't I don't think it matters. You know, they know that they're going to be there at the end. Now, if they get into Christmas time and they're <laughs> out of the mix, it's a different story. But let's take Pittsburgh or Washington. If you're Washington, you go two and ten to start two and eight to start the year. Yeah. I think they're in big trouble. Yeah. I think that team's more fragile than people may realize. They they haven't really done much since they won the cup. The team's largely stayed the same. Um, I, I may have concerns about Washington. I think some of the other clubs can handle it better. Yeah, I'm curious. And when we talk about players who were uh, are absent uh, for an indefinite period of time, and one of those teams that I think I don't think I don't think the Ottawa Senators are quite ready yet. Although I think under DJ Smith, they've taken strides forward. There's a lot of really, I think, promising young pieces there, and it's a hungry team. And that fan base certainly has been hungry for some success now uh, over the past four or five years, but. Without Brady Kachuk there and the contract impasse, is that different than an injury in terms of the dynamic in the dressing room? So if somebody's hurt, whether it's a Backstrom or whatever it is, 
how different is it than a healthy player who should be in your roster, but can't come to terms with the team? Does it change the dynamic at all in that dressing room? It's different. You know, when somebody's injured, that's out of your control. When a player isn't signed, there's animosity back towards the team because they haven't signed your, your friend, your teammate, the person that you look at to carry your club. And that's Brady Kachuk. In a perfect world, Brady Kachuk's locked up on an eight-year deal for big money, and he's the captain of the team. And he hasn't been giving something that makes him want to sign that. You know, whether it's structure, whether it's whether it's bonus money, whatever's going on there, it hasn't happened. And that could drag out clear until the end of November, I could see at this point. If you miss the first game, what does it matter if you sit out longer? And then everybody in the locker room starts looking around going, come on, management, get this done. What's going on here? You know, and, and I think that even when players know that a, a teammate might be reaching a little bit in terms of contract demands, there's still that thought of, we need to get this done, guys. We're a team here uh, and it's taxing on people. Um, but it does flip back to the team more so than the players in my eyes there. And that's not a good scenario. It's not healthy. You want to make, you want to have everybody on the same page pulling together. And like, I even look at Kirill Kaprizov, that's signing in Minnesota. I think that was more money than Minnesota probably wanted to spend, but you got to keep that player. You have to keep that player. And that resonates through the locker room. We're going to try to win. This is it. You know, I think there's, there's validity to that. And, and, you know, we look at not just players at this point, but uh, let's, let's flip this Scotty. Let's look at coaches. There's teams out there that need a hot start. How about the coaches? I mean, I look at Rick bonus in Dallas. Everybody loves bones. They love playing for him. He's on the last year of his contract. They didn't make playoffs last year. They were ravaged by COVID to start the season. I expect Dallas to be better. On paper, that's an outstanding team. They got a log jam in net. I'm not sure how that's going to play out. But I think for Rick Bonus' sake, it's got to start well there because I do believe there's a hot seat. Uh, and I think that, you know, you look at the Rangers even. Gerard Gallant comes in, and this is a big signing for the Rangers. You bring in somebody who's had success previously with the Panthers, with Vegas. Uh, he's done great things with new teams coming in afresh. I think there's a lot of pressure on Gerard Gallant and on the Rangers in general. Scotty, who do you see across the league that might be sitting on that hot seat? Yeah, well, I was thinking about Sheldon Keefe in, uh, in uh, Toronto, and, and even though there's been an extension – which I thought was critical. I mean, there are certain guys, and I think we may have touched on Dave Tivitt last week. There are certain coaches, mm-hmm. and may, and I think Rick Bonus is probably in that that boat as well. It, it, when you get to a certain stage in your career, it probably matters less if you are in the final year of your deal. You probably have a relationship with a GM or an owner where or an organization where you you know where you stand, and 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 there's a certain you know sort of zen. Uh, about it. Uh, at least mm-hmm. that's how I project it. Uh, I don't think anything is Zen in Toronto. And I, I thought, <laughs> is it, it ever? I don't know well, if it no, ever it, is. It, it never. <laughs> well, it, that's a function. If you decide, or if you are in a situation where you haven't won a playoff round since before the 04 or five lockout, I, I'm sorry, you don't get to be Zen. And when you are coming off a playoff series in a playoff year where you absolutely choked away a golden opportunity to go at least to a final four, yeah. And, and and possibly a Stanley Cup final, and you are up three one against a a, a very uh, listen. I'm not gonna I'm not throwing Montreal on the bus, but th- that was a pretty ordinary team. And you're up three one, and you can't close the deal. Um, then I'm I'm sorry. Then then you deserve to be on the hot seat. Now he's got the extension. Uh, that whole organization to me and my sense of Brendan Shanahan as the president there has he he. T- takes on a lot of the responsibility as he should. I think my sense is that he has said, listen, the buck stops with me, but I mean, this season is so critical for the Leafs and it doesn't matter. I mean, notwithstanding, not making the playoffs altogether, but I think they're a playoff team. They should score lots. Still not sure on that in the goaltending, but they should be a playoff team, but it doesn't matter if there are 62 wins. It doesn't matter if they go in as a wild card team all that matters is what happens starting the first round of the playoffs next spring. And that's hard. It, it, that's a hard way to coach, I think, because yeah. you have to keep the focus on the here and now when all anyone wants to is what's going to happen when the rubber hits the road in the playoffs next spring. And I, I, let me ask you, like, do you think that that 
does that change how especially a younger coach like Sheldon Keith, that maybe he approaches the game or what the challenge is knowing that the focus has to be here, but everyone else is thinking already till next April. You know, I've had the chance to play against Sheldon Keefe a fair amount in my career and at the American league level and played him twice his team when he was coaching Toronto Marlies in playoffs. And the first year when I was with the Syracuse crunch, we beat them in seven games. And it was a dogfight of a series, and that team was so good. And it's because the Marlies have twice the payroll of just about every other American League team a lot of the time, especially back then. They were stashing one-way contracts, and it was a little bit of a a different game uh, in terms of the playing field. Uh, But then the second year, uh, lost to them in Game 7 of the Calder Cup Finals. And I look at that as a learning moment for Sheldon Keefe and his projection as a coach in that – That team should have won both years. That team should win every year. The Marlies is who I'm speaking of. With who they put on the ice, the amount of money that they invested in it, the Marlies should win the Calder Cup every year in the American Hockey League. And it was a big disappointment to lose to our Syracuse team that first year for the Marlies. They knew they had a great club. And he took that and improved his team the next season. He got them over the hump. And he continued to press forward. And I, I think also the, you know, the, the show that's just come out recently with the Leafs looking inside um, that's on Amazon. I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately, right now. But it, it I think it just showed. All, all in or something like yeah, that. Yeah, all in on the Leafs. All, rip, in, but, ex- all in except for games five, six, and seven. Yes. But I think it showed a bit of the inside of the mentality of how Keith works. I'm impressed by him. I don't think that job security is something that he's shooting for. I think that winning is what he's shooting for. And I think that permeates through to Kyle Dubas as well. I had this conversation two years ago uh, with somebody in media talking about how, well, this is the NHL is what I was told about Kyle Dubas. That basically he doesn't have the guts to make a bold decision in the NHL. And he fired Mike Babcock the next day. And I had said that. This guy has a track record of doing these things in Sault Ste. Marie and Toronto. Kyle Dubas isn't in Toronto to put a good team on the ice and go have fun and wine and dine people. And he's not scared. People might look at him and see a diminutive young man who doesn't look like he's an imposing figure. He doesn't have Mark Bergevin guns and can't bench press 400 pounds. But he's a very intelligent person who knows what it takes to at least put a team together that's going to be able to compete and make adjustments as necessary. I do think they should place more of a premium on goaltending, but I think that's partially due to the fact that they haven't developed anybody from within. Right. That's the key. You can't just go out and buy a goaltender. That's going to win you a Stanley cup. It hasn't happened in over a decade. So I know I've gone on a bit of a tangent here with the Leafs. I know people will appreciate that conversation probably, but I just think that Keefe's on the right track with this. And I think that across the league, coaches should be coaching to win, not for job security. When you get into thinking about your job, you might as well quit. Yeah. Uh, so let, before we leave the, the lease, are, are, are they a playoff lock for you? I, that Atlantic division to me, um, you know, again, I don't think Ottawa is quite ready to, to jump up, but boy, no. the top end of that with Tampa, Florida, Boston, Toronto, I, I, you know, with Carey Price uh, away from the team and missing Shea Weber, I know Mike Hoffman's not going to, he's not quite ready to go yet. There's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts to what's going on to a team that went to a Stanley cup final, but Montreal is in the mix. Are the Leafs a lock or what what do you think? Uh, To me, I think they're still a lock. That that team's just too good. Um, It does hurt missing, missing uh, Zach Hyman. You know, he was really a driver for a lot of what happened on that club in terms of all around game. Um, I I like the Leafs, though. You know, I liked them last year. It's just that they fell apart at the wrong time. I I mean, bringing in people like Spezza and Simmons, those guys know the role. They know they're not going to be playing first, second line minutes, but they're there to win. And I still still think the back end could use some help. And obviously the goaltending gives me big question marks. And unfortunately for Preeti Mrazek, it's always been the question, can you win in playoffs with him? It's always dogged him wherever he's been. Yeah. And Jack Campbell's performance last year, which I do not blame him for that loss at all. You know, it's one bad goal, but one bad goal can haunt you in a city like Toronto. 
And Campbell doesn't have the track record of playing big time minutes yet. I just think there's question marks there. Uh, and again, it's just because they're so top heavy, but I do think they're a lock when you got, I mean, Matthew's going to score 60 this year, you know, if he's healthy, I just, between him and, and if Marner can manage to find the net in the postseason, I mean, we know in the regular season, you can. So I, I think the Leafs are, but man, that division is stacked. You're right, Scott. Like who else do you, who else do you think could be a sleeper in that division? Yeah, I, I think um, I think it's too soon for Detroit. Um, although they but they're going to be better, they're, they're going to surprise. Gonna, they are going to be better, and I'm really curious to see how Alex Nedeljkovic uh, does in Detroit after the Canes decided he wasn't a guy they felt they could go deep in the playoffs with, rightly or wrongly. Um, and I I do think Ottawa, I do think Brady Kachuk gets things resolved. You know, at some point, at some point, it, it makes no sense for player and team that your top one of your top one or two players mm-hmm. is not playing. So I do think it happens. And I think the senators are going to push. Um, to me, the question is Montreal, uh, if, if they put pressure on those other teams, if Jake Allen is, is going to be able to hold the Ford until Carey price comes back when we don't know when that will be exactly. I do like the blue line there. Um, I like the addition of Dvorak, uh, yeah. who I think, you know, more than adequately replaces Kotkaniemi, who, of course, was given the offer sheet and is in Carolina now with all the other Finnish players in the NHL. And the teams are um, still trolling one another on social yes, media. Yes, I still love and- that. <laughs> yeah, so I, to me, that's the wild card in in the Atlantic. And, and to me, the whole – because then you, you have to break it down a little bit further. If you're going to send – you know, are you sending four teams from the Atlantic or is it possible that the fifth team – comes into play, which, you know, which would be Montreal, I think. Um, But is Montreal going to be better than the fourth place team in the Metro, which is a division I think is is really in a state of flux. Um, That'd be the question. What do you make Montreal? I I mean, it almost, it, it, it almost feels like that trip to the Stanley cup final happened to, you know, like in another universe, it seems like it happened a million years ago. Yeah. I have Montreal as a playoff team. I think they're going to make it in, whether it's as a four or as a number five. I think they make it. I have concerns about Boston. Yeah. And it seems crazy because they've been so good for so long. The, that top line of Pastor and Heck Marshawn and Bergeron is unbeatable. But they've just been gradually chipping away pieces. Tuka Rask isn't there. You know, Linus Olmark's got great upside. He's played great for Buffalo but he's never played more than 35 games, 40 games. He's been hurt a ton. You know, Jeremy Swayman has lit the world on fire from junior to college to the American league and the NHL, but for 10 games in the NHL, it's a hard place to thrive as a number one goaltender. I'm not sure where Boston stands. Their blue line, I don't think is as strong as it's been previously. I think it's going to hurt not having David Krejci any longer. You know, I've, Talking to players, you know, I'm I'm not sure that it's always warm and fuzzy there. I I just I have a gut feeling that if there's a top team that could fall from grace, Boston's one of them, uh, and I I think Washington too. But Boston to me is a team that I'd really look for in that division, and and they could go prove me wrong. I mean, that top line, who knows? They can go do anything. But I do have concerns about them. But I I think Montreal makes it, Scotty. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, all right, we're going to take a uh, – it's not even a break. I'm just going to throw in uh, our little uh, DoorDash conversation. I know this is uh, something warm and near and dear to your heart. I'm a Mike, dedicated dasher. That's it. <laughs> DoorDash is the proud sponsor of the Nation Network of Podcasts, Restaurants, and More Delivered Right to Your Door. What's your what's your go-to, Mike? What's the if, – if I'm coming to dinner at the McKenna household and uh, – what's coming to the front door? Well, if we're making it easy, we've got a one Chinese about two miles down the road nice. and we've got, we've got the, we've got it on speed dial, basically our order. <laughs> and that's our standard dasher. You know, we've got my kids, they love the generic sesame chicken. Yes. Sweet and sour chicken, pork lo mein. And then I vary it up. Sometimes I'll go mushu pork. Sometimes I'll go sacha beef. Hunan chicken. I'm all over the place, Scotty, but everybody else in the family seems to be very streamlined in what they like and what they want to have for dinner. But that's the nature of having five and eight-year-old kids, right? You've been there before, Scott. True that. True that. 
Good stuff. Well, as we mentioned, we're going to have Bill Guerin come and join us in a bit. But before, I had to tell you one of the things last night, Mike, I mean, I love the crack in Jersey. I love the logo. I love it all. It was still a bit jarring to see Mark Giordano mm-hmm. wearing the C and it's not the, it's not the red and black and white of the flames. And I remember sitting down with Mark and I actually was in Raleigh, but that breakout year um, with the flames and people were like, Holy cow, how good is Mark Giordano? And to me, I, I, I will always think of him as a flame. Um, but how important is it to have a guy like Giordano to, to wear the first C for a team like Seattle? Because I, I, I'm, and I, I'm, I don't know whether you think the role of the captain has changed over, changed over the years or not, but to me, he's the perfect guy to, to, to have that role in Seattle. I think that him being the captain there is more predicated on the fact that he was perfect for it than them needing somebody. Right. And I'm firmly of the belief that every NHL team needs a captain. I'm going to have a piece coming out on Daily Faceoff uh, later this week about it. Hockey works best in the locker room with a benevolent dictatorship. You need to be able to look at one face and hear one voice when it hits the fan. I've been in locker rooms previously where you've got two warring factions of players that think they're the captain and they're both wearing A's. And when things went wrong, players are looking at one guy. Somebody's looking at the other guy. The players are looking at each other going, are you going to talk? Am I going to talk? How much are we supposed to talk? It doesn't work. Yeah. And I've been in locker rooms with some amazing leaders. Jamie Langenbrunner, captain in, in New Jersey. Yeah. Shane Doan, captain in Arizona. Jamie Benn, captain in Dallas. Every single one of these leaders, these captains, when you walk in that locker room as a player, you know that they're the leader. To me, that's the definition of a captain. And that's what's happened in Seattle with Mark Giordano. He walked in the room. He's got a gravitas to him. He's been a captain in the league previously. He's still a top-end player. He's a player that works hard, that defends, that plays offensively, that can communicate. Communication aspect is so important. You know? And it does go to coaches and management, but it's more to your teammates. You, know? you need to be in the locker room more than you're in the coach's room. And I think Giordano's somebody that's so well-respected. It was an easy choice for them. And you know, I think you also look at, The Golden Knights, for example, they came in, they did not name a captain right away. Uh, And and realistically, Derek Englund was the de facto captain of that team, but he didn't wear the C. You know, is he going to be here? Is he going to retire? Questions. Leadership by committee. I hate that term. I don't think five assistant captains equals one captain. I don't. I think it muddies the waters. And I think for Vegas, it actually hurt them. I think they named Mark Stone captain about six or eight months too late. I think everybody in that locker room knew he was the guy early in his first full campaign with the Vegas Golden Knights two years ago uh, in the, that would have been the 1920, the 2019-20 season. Right. But they didn't name him. They didn't want to do it in season. And I can understand that. And I can understand as an expansion team that you want to have some leeway and find the right person And you want to have the glitz and the glamour of it at the start of the year. But Scotty, how many times have we seen it where a team gives the keys to a player as their captain because they signed a long-term contract? Yeah. Well, how do you feel about that? Yeah. Well, and, and part, and I think that's the whole, like, it strikes me that it's still, it's not a symbolic, well, it is symbolic, but it's not just a, uh, you are the face of the franchise when you wear that right. C. Yeah. You are the captain and the goalie. Those are your faces of the franchise. Right. It 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 is not a hollow uh, designation, or it shouldn't be. But and I, it strikes me that, that that for teams, you know, the Rangers are are interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. where is you know where does that lie? And and Jargalan, of course, it was in Vegas to start with. Um, you know, to, you don't want to foist something on someone. Where, when they're not ready for it. You know, I remember when Sidney Crosby was made captain, I believe that was under Michelle Terrian in the second year, and you knew it was going to happen. And you know what? It, 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 I think it worked out perfectly. I mean, Jonathan Taze, again, named a captain mm-hmm. at a very, very early age. And but those are guys want- that you would look to immediately and go, yeah, these are captain material people. 
Right. Right. I don't think anybody looked at Oliver Ekman Larson and went, this guy has to be the next captain of the Arizona Coyotes after Shane Dalton. And I love Oliver, Oliver Ekman Larson. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think you're right on Vegas. I think, you know, again, from the outside, I thought it, it looked like a team that wanted for a, a, a defined leader in the moments mm-hmm. Uh, in the playoffs the last two years, frankly. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, I, and maybe it'll be different this year with Mark Stone designated and now in the role that he was maybe fulfilling otherwise. I, I was curious, though, do you, do you think being a captain now is different in the sense that it's not just on the ice, you know, sort of performing and stepping up and keeping players ready to play and all those things. But it's also strikes me that being captain now, especially with the youthfulness in the, in the NHL is making sure that, you know, that, that players are, you know, that their, their mental health is okay. And that they have um, strong connections with people on the team and, and those kinds of things, or has it always been that way? Do you think? I think you make a great observation in that it has shifted. You know, the captain used to be an ass kicker a lot of the time. Yeah. Come in and you don't like what somebody's doing. You slap them around in the in the <laughs> in the players' lounge. You know, like we've I've been in locker rooms where the captain literally had another teammate in a chokehold at one point because he was watching monster trucks or something like that. You know what I mean? Like this was the insanity of hockey ten or twelve years ago at times. Uh, but I think it's changed so much because now you're it, and it's just the course of humanity. I think that we're in, but. Captains now really have to have some humility and some caring aspect to their teammates. You know, they need to be the ones that invite everybody over for dinner, that round up the troops, uh, not just for the fun committee, but to make sure everybody's safe when you're doing it. Because nowadays you really have to watch out for one another. And, you know, everything's on blast. It's all on social media. And you need somebody with experience to be able to tell everyone when to watch out, when you can have fun, when it's a safe space. Yeah. And that's hard to do if you're 21 or 22 years old in the league, because you may understand on the ice what you need to do. You might work hard. You might kill yourself in the weight room. You might do everything you need to do, but you don't have that experience of playing in the NHL for five or six years and knowing the pitfalls of at home and on the road, because they are there, you know, and I think Crosby was somebody who was way ahead of his time in terms of maturity and Taves as well. Um, I always get concerned when I see young captains handed the keys right away. And again, a lot of times it's when it comes from ownership instead of management, that's when I'm nervous. You know, when ownership looks at us saying, I just spent this much money on this person, this has got to be my captain. That's a problem because you can't fool the guys in the locker room. The guys in the locker room know who they want to lead them and who should lead them. And it's also hard for fans, Scotty, like how many times, have we had the hypothetical articles we've seen about our comments from fans now on social? Why isn't he captain? Yeah. Well, well, well I mean, we just went through, <laughs> you know, it was a big, you know, the big deal of the captaincy being stripped from Jack Eichel. And I like, mm-hmm. I get it, but it's still it, like, it's a dramatic moment. I, I remember in San Jose and Patrick Marlowe Marlo. had the seat taken away and, you know, it's, you know, ultimately it goes to Joe Pavelski and, uh, you know, it just, uh, it, it is, it is an important, it, it is important. And I, and it, yeah. I think you're right. Whether you're a fan or a coach or a teammate, that's a meaningful thing. If you, if you walk in the door with that C on your Jersey, I just, I think 100%. it is important. So I, I uh, just, all right, my friend, as, as promised, we're going to uh, chat with Bill Guerin of the Minnesota Wild and Team USA. So uh, hang in. All right, everybody, as promised, joined now by Minnesota Wild GM and also the assistant GM of Team USA for the 2022 Olympics, Bill Guerin. Bill, I would talk about me. Do you miss me? Because as uh, people may know, I spent, I spent most of a week in the Minnesota Wild draft war room leading up to free agency in the draft, the expansion draft. And I haven't got any texts or emails asking my advice since I left. And I'm frankly a bit surprised. No, we do miss you. We absolutely do miss you. You know what? Our rides into the office every morning were the best ones I had. I miss it. I miss it. I, I, we'll have to, we'll have to bring you back soon. Uh, You're a special assignment guy. You're, 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 you're a special assignment guy. That's, 
That's uh, that's very I've important. Called, I've been called a lot of things. And if it's special assignment, that's not the worst of them. So, but it's <laughs> so Mike and I've been talking, of course, we're a day into the new NHL schedule and how exciting it is for opening night. And, and, and the wild of course will start on the road and with a couple of games against Anaheim in LA, but I'm curious, you're relatively new to the, to the GM game. You've been an executive for a number of years, starting in Pittsburgh. What, how is it different when you get ready for game one than, than when you were a player, you were a two-time Stanley cup champion as a player, What's the difference as an executive? Is it you know what's the vibe on that side of the the ledger as you start a new season? Well, the first thing is you don't get to play, <laughs> but you do you do get um, you know kind of like the butterflies going again in your stomach and like you get that the excitement is here even though you I, like I don't get to play anymore. It's I'm excited. I'm excited to see what our team can do and what. Um, you know, what, what we've worked hard for all summer long, all off season long to put together, um, let's, let's get it going. Let's, let's see what kind of noise we can make. And, um, yeah, that, that's, that's an exciting time for, for me. It's kind of interesting to think about when you look at the past that we have, it's not a big past, but it has been crossover previously. And Scotty already talked about the relationship that you guys have together, Bill, I think you and I first crossed paths in training camp in St. Louis the season you played there, but we got a nice picture from my first game of my NHL career. First one I ever played was long in Long Island. You're on the ice for the Islanders. Uh, I came in in relief, but the fun part was, for me at least, we go to Tampa Bay. My first win and shutout was against your club. And, you know, you played 1,263 games in the NHL, not counting playoffs. How many of those singular games can you remember? Because you, you fought Ryan Malone that game. You know, and I'm just yeah. I'm curious at the memory level that somebody like yourself that played so many games has, if you could even pinpoint, you know, that one game from late in your career or any other game for that matter that really stands out to you. Yeah, I, I actually remember that that game well. I remember that moment because uh, Sean Bergenheim was being a little pain in the neck out there and Bugsy, Bugsy took offense to it, but Bergy didn't fight. And I was I was standing right there. So, you know, that that happened. And, um, Amazing. you know, you know what, it's funny. I think just like anything else through your life, there's probably like trigger points. Is there, you know, a, a song or a smell or, or something that will trigger your, your, your mind and, and bring you back to a, a specific game. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- there are a lot of games and a lot of, a lot of great memories and, you know, don't remember them all, but like, like sure. kind of, like I said, there, there's, if you see video too, you're like, Oh man, yeah, that, that happened. And now I remember that. So as a general manager now, and obviously evaluating players throughout the entire league, do you still have those same types of trigger points where a certain memory of a shift of one player will stick in your mind and make you dig deeper on them? Yeah, I I think when, you know, when I was doing uh, player development or, you know, I was an assistant GM and I was out seeing more games and, uh, just the last couple of years, I haven't really been able to watch a ton of like scouting games or anything like that. You could see a player and you might see something in him, like some sort of trigger, something that he did in one shift that will make you like that player. Um, and then you kind of have to keep going back to him and back to him and back to him to make sure that you're not just relying on that one shift or that one moment. And that, that, that goes for, for our own players as well. You know, you, you have to you have to put a lot of time in and watching these guys day in and day out to make sure that well something that they did really really well isn't just a one time thing or something that they did poorly wasn't just a one time thing so it's all a matter of like repetition and and just seeing players and making sure you're you know kind of backing your initial thought up yeah i mentioned you know you won two stanley cups as a player, one early, one late, um, you were part of uh, multiple cup winning teams in Pittsburgh as an executive. I'm, when you look at this wild team, this is the first training camp in the first full season now without you know, veteran guys like uh, Ryan Suter and Zach Parise, who both were bought out. It's a big, it's a, it's a big, bold move by the Minnesota wild to do that. But I wonder when you, 
when you think about culture and you think about chemistry and what you want to build with that team, do you go back to moments as a player or maybe when you first started as an executive in Pittsburgh and, and understood the feel and, and try and replicate that? Or, or can you, I, like I, to me, it sounds like, is it a snowflake thing where it's completely different every single time? Or are there things that you say, you know what, I, we can build this foundation and I believe these are the players who can do it for us. Well, I think it's a bit of the snowflake thing, I, I, but it, it, it can happen and it does happen. I think the most important thing is that you have, you have your core values and um, your criteria for what you want in not just your team, but in what you want in your players, what type of people you want, what type of players you want. Um, you have to do your due diligence on, on each and every guy on what type of teammate he is, what type of character he has. You put that together and um, hopefully uh, it, it kind of meshes and, and, it, and it creates something special. I do think that culture, I'm a big, big culture guy. Yeah. And culture has a lot to do with it in that you can, if you have a good culture, strong culture, something that, that is, is positive and strong. You can absorb a lot of different things um, and, and, and it'll be okay. So I, I just, I, I, I really believe in the people that we have that we've put in place. And it really seems like right now that things are going very well. Now the, the key is, is that you can have a, your culture and all the good guys and everything that feels good right now has to turn into results on the ice. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. And you know what, too? Like, I'll go back and just say this. Like, you don't want every, – everybody can't be the same either. Yeah. You know, you can't have all rah-rah guys. You can't have all quiet guys. You know what? Some guy – one of the guys on the team might be a little edgy. You know, he might, he might say some things to – you know, that puts people on edge. But that's Okay. Like I said, that culture can absorb that, and you need that. You can't have everybody just being the same, you know. It's, yeah, you, you need a lot of different types of people. At what point in your playing career did you kind of realize that about the dynamic of a locker room? You know, because obviously as a player, that's what's going to lead you into what you believe is your core values in management. Yeah, early, early on. I mean, because I went to New Jersey, and we had such great leadership. We had you know, uh, such great veteran guys, Bruce Driver, uh, Scotty Stevens, Kenny Danico, John McClain, um, you know. And all varied personalities guys. in there, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But then we also had Stefan Riche, you know what, who was his own guy. And then we had, you know, one of my favorite people, one of my favorite teammates of all time is Claude Lemieux. And, and Pepe would say whatever was on his mind, um, it didn't matter who you were. And he rubbed a lot of guys the wrong way at certain times, but we would all take him in a heartbeat to be on our team in crunch time. Um, and that's kind of what I'm talking about. We couldn't all be like, you know, can't all be milk drinkers, can't all be beer drinkers, can't all be, you know, the same guy. You, you need a lot of different personalities. And it just, it takes a strong culture to let all those things mix together. Talking about culture. I'm not sure that everybody expected Dean Evison to remain as head coach of the Minnesota Wild. You know, he's an assistant coach. He's been ahead previously uh, with the Milwaukee Admirals in the American League. I have friends that coached alongside him and played for him that all have really good things to say. But I think it was kind of seen as, a, as something of a bold move to keep him in power. What made you decide that Dean Evison was the right person to lead your team as head coach? Uh, there are a couple of things. And I didn't know Dean. <clears throat> excuse me. I didn't know Dean well at all when I first got this job. Uh, and the one thing that I did like about him is that we were going to do a, a search after. Um, but the guy that I was going to be looking for had experience with younger players, experience with minor league players, willing to play younger players, willing to play guys up from the American Hockey League. And Dean checked every one of those boxes because when we were in Pittsburgh, I think the best, one of the best things that happened to us was Mike Sullivan was in uh, Wilkesbury. So when he came up to Pittsburgh, 
there are a bunch of young players in Wilkes-Barre that he believed could play mm -hmm. in the National Hockey League, so he wasn't afraid to play them. That paid such huge dividends for if we don't get those young players in our lineup, Pittsburgh, I guarantee we don't win those cups. Yeah. So in talking to Dean and going through everything, he has the courage to do that. He has the belief in those guys because he spent time in the Western Hockey League. He spent time in the American Hockey League. He spent time in the NHL. He played in the NHL. And he's got all this, just these different areas of, exp of, uh, of experience. And the other thing I like about him is that he's got guts. He's not afraid to make hard decisions. And he, he's empathetic to a player's, you know, feelings and situations where he'll spend time with them. Or it's not just like, you're not playing tonight, go skate. It's, hey, you're not playing tonight. This is why. This is what we're going to do moving forward. He's kind of an open book. So I, there's a lot to like about Dino. Did, is, is your relationship with Dean different than you thought it was going to be? Or has it evolved, you know, in the time that he's been there? Because it, I, it strikes me that that's having that relationship flourish is critical to success. If you coach and GM, absolutely. I don't think, you, I don't know if you have to be pals, but you, you must have to have some simpatico going on. Yeah, we do. Well, he's, he's, my golf game's gotten better because that's the only place <laughs> I can track him down is the golf course. So I have to, I have to be out there with him sometimes. Um, but no, our, our, our relationship is, has really grown and, we have a um, we have a great we we have very good communication. Um, we we have we see a lot of the same things uh, the the same way as for recalls and younger players and moving in a different direction and how how we get players going. But we also challenge each other. We don't agree on everything, but um, I think we're both open minded people and we listen to each other. And it's, there's, there's some give and take in the relationship too. You know, hey, look, I'll, I'll listen to you on this one thing, but I really think on this other thing, let's try it this way. And he's, he's really good with that. Yeah. Um, we're going to let you go, uh, but I would be remiss if we did not ask you about Team USA. And, I, uh, you know, you have a long history uh, wearing the red, white, and blue. Uh, people may not remember, you played in one of the greatest best-on-best -best tournaments of all time, the uh, winning team in 1996, the World Cup of Hockey, and now as assistant GM of Team USA, uh, after the NHL took um, took the 18 Olympics off, this is, this is a brand-new landscape in terms of best-on-best, -best, and especially for Team USA, where some of the brightest stars – their first ever chance to play in this kind of tournament. Uh, I think of, you know, Austin Matthews and Seth Jones, and uh, you go down the list. Um, what, what's the process been like for you at this stage? And, you know, maybe what, you know, how, how does it move forward for you as you get closer and closer to having to name team USA um, for the uh, Beijing tournament? Well, it's a huge honor to be involved. I'm having a blast working with Stan Bowman and uh, John Van Beesbrook. And it's just to be involved at this level um, of management is, yeah, it's, it's just great. I mean, I'm having a lot of fun and, and this is important. And I feel like right now we have such a great talent pool uh, to choose from. Uh, we can not just compete with anybody. We can beat anybody. And, and that's, that's the goal is to, to bring home a gold medal. And I think this generation of players has such a great opportunity to, uh, to, to do that. And um, man, it's just, it's just really exciting. And the, the selection process will not be easy. Um, you know, I, there, there are the obvious names, but there are so many other names that we know that can contribute. It's just going to be hard drawing the line on, on certain guys. So is it, so is it, do you have to have a shared vision then on what that team looks like and how you're going to play? I mean, I, I think sometimes in the past, you know, these tournaments teams have said, well, how do we beat Canada? So let's build ourselves to beat Canada or like, do you, is it, how important is it to have your own identity and say, I don't care who we play. 
we're going to, this is how we're going to play. This is what our identity is going to be. And I, I think in many ways, that's what happened in 2010. Um, but, you know, how do you, how do you achieve that? No, we, hey, look, we're, we're the United States of America. We just have to worry about ourselves. You know what? We have to build our team to play against everybody. Um, listen, Stan, Stan's a general manager. This team is going to be built with his vision. I support, I support him. <clears throat> you know, Mike, Mike Sullivan as our coach will, will have a lot of input. Um, but Stan is a GM and you know what? He's got a great vision of what this team can be and how we want to play. It's, it's um, but you know, we're going to, we're going to focus on us and our game and our players. Good stuff. Scotty, what are we going to wager on this? You're the, you're the Canadian out of this talk. I'm the American sitting here. <laughs> I, I, you know, my friends call me, they call, oh, me, yeah. they, <laughs> they call me the ugly well, American you, or the angry. I got a U.S. passport. All right. <laughs> there you go. You're coming around, Scotty. We appreciate that. <laughs> anyway, Bill, thanks for taking the time. Good luck this season. And listen, if you need, need anything on my end, you still have my cell and my email, just, you know, let me know. Absolutely. I'll let you know. Special assignment. <laughs> thanks for having me on, you guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, thanks Bill. Billy. Thanks for your time. I've known Billy a long time, and uh, it's always such a treat, you, you know, back to when he was a player, Mike, and he was just unflinchingly honest and open to, you know, talking not just about the, you know, what was happening in that you know, here and now, you know, in Pittsburgh, for instance, but yep. to talk the game and to talk what was important. And I'm not surprised that he's already carving out a name for himself as a, as an NHL GM. So, uh, yeah, I'm not either. I, and I just, I look at his, not just his playing career, but what he's done to impact the game. There's a lot of people that really look up to him and it's not surprising that he's in the role that he is. And a lot of it comes down to those relationships he's built. And, yeah. you know, two years ago or last year, maybe it was, I'm in the elevator in, in Vegas for a Golden Knights game and he sees me and, hey, great career, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, man, I was an absolute pigeon. How do you even remember me? You know, like <laughs> we went in training camp, we played a couple games against one another. You know, we had dinner once at Hilton Head at the Board of Governors meetings of the American Hockey League, but yeah. I, I never expected those things, you know? And when somebody goes out of their way to just to recognize that, that shows you the type of person they are and how they run things. That culture that's going on in Minnesota is completely different than it's been. Yeah. And yeah. Billy Guerin is the reason why that's happened. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, you know, as you, as you know, most of my stories are about me, but, you know, having spent that time in Minnesota um, during the draft, the expansion draft, uh, the lead up to free agency. And, and we didn't ask Bill or didn't mention him, but, you know, he's brought in, veteran guys. Ray Shiro yeah. is uh, part of that staff there who built the Stanley cup winner in, uh, in Pittsburgh uh, in 08. Well, final in 08 winner in 09. Randy Sexton is there. Mm -hmm. A lot of guys with experience, but what I found and, interesting it, during that week, can we just real quick, let's mention <laughs> go slew. They're both St. Lawrence guys, Ray Shiro <laughs> and Randy Sexton. So you got some brain power. Well, there. You got a ton of brain power, but what's what I came away with, and it goes to your point is that when there were, and there was lots of debate about the players, and this is a team because of the buyouts of Parisi and Suter that they're, you know, they're going to face some difficult cap decisions moving forward. Mm -hmm. And that's already on the table there. But w when push came to shove and names are being bandied about, and, oh, I like this player. I don't like it, it, That's Bill Guerin's show. And mm -hmm. when it came time to end a discussion or make a decision or move on, it was unequivocally Bill Guerin's voice that carried. And I, I'm with you. I, I, I think that is a very different team. It's it, that central division is going to be very tough, but I, I think they're going to be right in the mix all the way through it. So. Yeah. They pushed Vegas to the limit last year. I actually thought that they were a bigger threat than Colorado was. And they went to seven games at the golden Knights. Uh, the wild are constructed in a really tight way. They play any style you need, but they play hard. Uh, I mean, Losing Suter and Susie is going to be a hit on the back end, but they replaced him with Goligoski and Kulikov and Merrill. Like they backfilled nicely there for the pieces they lost. And again, it's about culture. You bring in good guys that people want to be around. And wasn't it funny, Scotty, how we listened to Billy talk about how Dean Evison had the guts to make decisions? Yeah. They're in lockstep here. You've got two guys that aren't afraid 
to make a decision that's going to ruffle feathers or that's going to be bold when they feel is right. And that's living in the moment. That's, that's how you build a winner, man. You can't be, you can't be hesitant in this game as a manager, as a coach. Yeah. Well, my friend, I like to think that we were building the culture here at the suitcase and scribe, but uh, it is time to bid adieu for this, our second episode. We'll do it again next week. Um, as always, good work by you and can't wait to do it again. Can't either. Till next time. Indeed. Thanks for listening to The Suitcase and The Scribe, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to never miss an episode.